0: Hello, and welcome to the Contours podcast by the New Lines Institute for Strategy and Policy. This is your host, Carolyn Mormon, and today we'll be covering South Africa and their diplomatic dance with the International Criminal Court. I'll be joined by David Rako and Kwangu Luwewe. David Rako is the Senior Director for Political Systems Analysis at New Lines. Prior to joining the Institute, he served for more than 13 years as a working-level diplomat political analyst and head of office, and U.N. field missions in Afghanistan and Libya, as well as Sudan from 2008 to 2011, and South Sudan from 2011 to 2012. Kwagu is the Africa editor at the New Lines magazine. She is a seasoned multimedia journalist who has covered political, economic, and societal events in Zambia, Zimbabwe, Malawi, and South Africa for her entire career. She was previously the West Africa Bureau Chief for eNews Channel Africa, and the host of Africa 360. Thank you both for joining the show. Thank you, Caroline, for having us. Thank you. So, I'd like to start with how a recent International Criminal Court ICC decision has really brought a lot of attention onto South Africa. So, this decision was passed in late March. The ICC released an arrest warrant for Russian President Vladimir Putin for war crimes, specifically the forced and illegal transfer of Ukrainian children from occupied areas of Ukraine into Russia. So it's made a lot of headlines, but these arrest warrants are much more complicated than they seem. So I'm wondering, David, a common complaint of the ICC is that the ICC can arrest people. They can not arrest suspects and instead have to rely on member states to do so. So I'm wondering, in your opinion, if this arrest warrant is more of a all bark, no bite, or if there's any kind of real implications behind this.
1: Well, thank you, Carolyn. I think it's, it's pretty clear that this is at this point much more than purely symbolic measure. You can see that in the diplomatic follow up we're already seeing in the U.S., in South Africa, in Russia. I think the Chinese are having a piece of it as well. This is, it's it's not a small thing and it's, it's not uh, solely on paper. Let's step back for a second and it's, very clear that the arrest warrant is a legally binding document. It's not simply a political statement by the court, right? The Rome Statute, which is the treaty that created the the ICC, is an international treaty and is legally binding on its member states. And South Africa is a member state. It signed the treaty and agreed to be legally bound by it. More than that, uh, South Africa has passed The ICC Act, which basically takes the international law obligations under the Rome statute and makes them also legally binding within South African law. So South African courts can enforce that law. So in both international and South African law, these things are, are not simply symbolic. Whether South Africa can get away with breaking that law and what the consequences of breaking that law would be are an entirely different matter. And we saw that previously with Omar Bashir in a previous case in South Africa, that that created a bunch of legal problems there. Right now, I think there is more of a recognition that there really isn't much sort of legal excuse for not arresting Vladimir Putin if he arrives on the ground in South Africa. So the real issue at this point is, one, can they find a legal loophole, which seems increasingly unlikely. Really, the Rome Statute is specifically designed to prevent there from being any kind of legal recourse in this situation. It's, this is really the case in which the statute was designed for. Can South Africa avoid doing this without breaking the law? Probably not. Can they break the law and get away with it? That's a different question.
2: It's interesting. David, that you brought that up. And then when we look at what happened with Bashir when he visited South Africa in 2015 to attend an African Union summit. So he attended it and then he was allowed to leave. And nothing happened to South Africa in terms of the ICC slapping South Africa in the hand for doing this. So it's interesting to see whether this time around, if Putin does show up at the BRICS conference scheduled for August, if there'll be any repercussions, because South Africa will just look at previously what happened in the Bashir incident. Nothing happened to them then. So what's the risk now of allowing Putin to come and go?
1: It really comes down to, well, there are a number of different questions that, you know, what are the sort of political differences between the, the situation with Bashir and the situation now? The political environment internationally, broadly speaking, is much different. I think certainly the international community's attitude towards Bashir and its attitude towards Putin are different. And one other difference I think that is important is that now there have been several legal cases, both in internationally and in South Africa regarding the Bashir case. So the precedent there has been settled. So all of those things are not to say that the, that South Africa can't get away with it, you can't use to arrest him and, and expect nothing to happen. But I think it's a difficult comparison because situations have changed.
0: So. I'd like to draw from what you both have mentioned, which is this past case where Sudanese President Omar al-Bashir was in South African territory and was not arrested, even though there was an ICC warrant for his arrest. So as you've mentioned, David, these are very different circumstances, because when Vladimir Putin comes to South Africa for the BRICS conference, which for our listeners who may not know, BRICS stands for Brazil, Russia, India, China and South Africa. And it's a geopolitical grouping seen as a rival to the G7. And I'm wondering how you see South Africa's relations with Russia, as they are both BRICS members, how South Africa is weighing this relationship in regards to this arrest warrant. We've seen that South Africa has sought to maintain joint military operations despite the Russian invasion of Ukraine. So I'm wondering if you can break down a little bit for me how South Africa's relations with Russia are impacting this.
2: Okay, so yes, you have mentioned the joint military exercises that took place. So you will recall that this particular exercise took place with Russia and China. And it actually happened during the first anniversary of the war in Ukraine. So some countries in the West, the US particularly, were not amused with this and criticized South Africa for this. But South Africa, on the other hand, turned around and says, look, we routinely host these drills. They do it with other countries. They cited countries like France and the United States itself, and, you know, they're still maintaining this neutrality that they're non aligned when it comes to this uh, war between Russia and Ukraine. So that's the stance South Africa is categorically stating. Of course, a lot of other people think otherwise, including the opposition parties in the country, specifically the Democratic Alliance, have said no, seems to be leaning towards um, supporting Russia in this conflict.
1: I think it's very important to kind of grapple with the complexity of South Africa's relationship with Russia, both the state, the government of South Africa, and the ANC, which is you know a political party and has its own interests and in, in relationships, but has also been you know the dominant political party in, in South Africa since apartheid. The state of South Africa has taken a number of steps in an attempt to try and assert its neutrality in the Ukraine conflict. You know, initially, I believe there was a statement that Russia should withdraw its troops, but then there was the joint exercise. Since the ICC arrest warrant issue has come up, South Africa has led an an African sort of mediation effort to try to intervene in the Ukraine conflict as as a neutral mediator. That has been sort of an aggressive attempt to kind of maintain balance, right? On the other hand, you know, the ANC has its a long standing relationship with Russia and China. I mean, you know, the ANC has its sort of historical origins in, in the South African Communist Party. And at that point, maintained, you know, relationships with the Communist parties in China and, and Russia, had those alliances through the Cold War period during a time when the US had declared the ANC to be a, a terrorist organization. But so there's sort of long standing relationships between the ANC and the Russians, the Chinese as well, but the, the Russians in this case in particular. And those sort of cultural relationships, those historical relationships are very important. And we can see that in a couple of measures. One is, is the ANC's youth wing has been quite vocal about supporting Russia in the Ukraine conflict and have criticized NATO for expanding westwards as an imperialist move, have called for recognition of Russian claims to Crimea, Senior figures within the ANC have said that it's impossible to arrest Putin if he comes. They've come out and said that, which is quite different from the sort of stated position of the government. So all of those things kind of tie together. Another issue that I think is interesting to kind of keep in mind is that the ANC as a party also have a very complicated sort of financial relationship with senior Russian oligarchs who are close to Putin particularly a gentleman by the name of Victor Vexelberg. The ANC and Vexelberg co-own a very profitable manganese mine, and that mine provides a great deal of revenue for the ANC at a time when, you know, the ANC is kind of famously at this point short on cash or has had difficulty recently paying its own staff. So those financial relationships with senior Russian figures also complicate the picture.
2: Just to come in there, David has explained about the relationship between Russia and South Africa, and especially the ruling party, the ANC. But it's also interesting here to talk about another opposition political party. But these are like a breakaway from the ANC. So it comes as no surprise that the economic freedom fighters under Julius Malema is also in total support of Russia in this war. And also, we've heard this leader speak about welcoming Putin. In South Africa, if he was to arrive in South Africa, I think Malema said he would personally go to the airport to pick him up, take him to the venue and make sure he you know, does his presentations and take him right back to the airport. So it shows that, you know, even the opposition, such as the EFF, supports Russia and Putin in this war with Ukraine. On the other hand, we have the other opposition group, which is the Democratic Alliance, which has categorically said that South Africa is two-faced You know, in one breath, they say they are non-aligned when it comes to this conflict. And the flip side of it, of course, is like um, we've just talked about the naval bases and the joint military exercises. And we know what happened there. So it just shows that, you know, the ANC and probably the black opposition parties support Russia for obvious reasons, which David cited. They helped them during the struggle against apartheid.
0: It's really interesting what you both have highlighted, the kind of difference between what individual political parties in South Africa are saying about this issue versus overall government statements. And I'm curious, Kwangu, how you weigh the U.S.'s ability to make an impact here. So we've seen a couple different source spots that have happened somewhat recently. We saw at the end of May, we saw parts of the U.S. accuse South Africa, allowing a Russian ship loaded with weapons and ammunition to stop at South Africa naval base in December, which the U.S. claims is a violation of how South Africa has claimed to be neutral. And I'm wondering, do you see the U.S. having an impact here? And in the same breath, parts of South Africa, including the ANC, other parties have said, we won't arrest Putin. We won't take this action. Yet. We've also seen reports that South Africa is considering asking China or even Mozambique, its neighbor, to host the conference. So in the fact that they're trying to find loopholes, can we draw any conclusions from this?
2: Okay, Caroline, yes. Firstly, when we look at what happened with that Russian vessel. So there was a Russian vessel that docked at a naval base just close to Cape Town in South Africa. And the U.S. ambassador to South Africa came out and said he was confident that weapons from South Africa being loaded onto that vessel, and it's actually a vessel that's been sanctioned by the U.S. So that brought a lot of controversy about that. The South Africans turned around and said that's not what happened, and that they were bringing in ammunition to South Africa that had been held up during the outbreak of COVID-19. So that sparked almost a diplomatic row between the two countries, and now President Cyril Ramaphosa has set up an inquiry into this. And South Africans are waiting anxiously, and the rest of the world, to know exactly what this was all about. In terms of the relationship between the two countries, there's a huge economic risk for South Africa if South Africa is sanctioned by the US for getting involved with this, because we've got an AGOA, which stands for the Africa Growth and Opportunity Act. So South Africa here has duty free access to US markets. This, of course, is for some selected products. So South Africa was to lose on this front. It would cost the country a lot of money. I mean, for instance, when the US ambassador to South Africa had made those pronouncements and those accusations about the vessel, we saw the South African currency, the rand plummet in that that particular day that was announced. So it just shows how volatile the situation is. Also in terms of AGOA, as I said, this duty-free access if it's halted, then South Africa stands to lose on an economic front with this.
1: It's important here to kind of take a look at, at sort of the U.S.'s position on this, both with respect to South Africa and with respect to the ICC. I think it's fairly clear that the U.S. would very much like to see South Africa arrest Vladimir Putin or, you know, in, in whatever way, refuse to allow him to enter if not arrest him. But the U.S. is not really in a position to directly push South Africa on that issue, largely because, well, first of all, the U.S. is not a signatory to the ICC to the Rome Statute. But more than that, the U.S. has gone to great lengths to to take measures to prevent its own citizens, its own nationals, from being subject to ICC jurisdiction. To the extent that you know, the U.S. has threatened military action. Against anyone who attempted to arrest U.S. citizens. So it, it it really makes it from a sort of diplomatic and public perspective impossible for the U.S. to come out and say that the, that anyone should be arresting anyone for the, for the sake of the ICC if the U.S. is going to retain its sort of long held position there. And just to reinforce what she said, Agoa is a huge economic for South Africa right now. A large percentage of South Africa's automobile production, for example, goes to the U.S. And currently, those exports are tariff-free. If South Africa were to lose its, its status under AGOA and lose that tariff-free status, it would be devastating to the South African auto manufacturing industry. At the same time, you know, South Africa's trade relationship with Russia is pretty negligible. The U.S. is is by far South Africa's largest international trading partner and And, you know, Russia rarely, barely registers. So it could very well be that raising the issue and emphasizing the issue of this possible arms deal involving the way they are is, is a way of increasing pressure on, on South Africa to, to uphold its obligations under the ICC without saying that's what's happening. I think it's, it's also, very interesting to see that the U.S. ambassador, who is the one who has kind of brought all of these accusations to the forefront, is it's not a, a someone who bought a, an ambassadorship with political contributions. This is someone who has been part of the U.S. foreign policy apparatus for a long time. And yet he came out and made a very sort of bold statement, which the State Department appears to have been so, somewhat walking back in recent days. Right around the same time, the U.S. State Department has seemed to be distancing itself from, from the ambassador. The South African government seems to be looking at more publicly at possible concessions, whether it be moving uh, the summit to China or somewhere else. Um, so the possibility that those two things are linked uh, is is interesting. Right? The possibility that the ambassador intentionally made a, a, a very bold public statement so that it could be walked back, uh, and so that it could be walked back in, in exchange for concessions is, is, a, is a real possibility.
0: Thanks, David and Kwangu, for giving some larger geopolitical relevance to our listeners, and also, David, for going more into detail about this recent accusation from the U.S. ambassador to South Africa. Another point that I'm really interested in is the rumors that South Africa would be considering asking its neighbor, Mozambique, who is not even in BRICS, to host this conference. Kwangu, do you have any idea of why this would be happening or Mozambique's place in
2: this? No, Mozambique is a strange choice. As you said, um, they're not a member of BRICS. But they're also considering China. Of course, China is one of the members of BRICS. But you will recall, or in case you don't know, China is not a signatory to the ICC. So maybe that's why China is being considered. The other option, of course, is to have the summit done remotely so that, you know, all the heads of state are in their countries and, you know, they attend remotely. Because one of the South African analysts I was speaking to yesterday also brought to light that if South Africa goes ahead with the summit and Putin is uninvited or asked to attend remotely, that would also be very undiplomatic and Putin probably wouldn't take kindly to that. So let's wait and see whether it'll be China or surprisingly Mozambique. It
1: also is interesting that it it puts, you know, it it may very well be that moving the summit to to somewhere else is really sort of the least bad option for South Africa. But it really still puts them in a jam. Right. South African government really values its membership in BRICS. And it's it's the most recent inductee into BRICS, right? It's the last one to join, and this idea that that it somehow is going to sort of undermine its own status within the grouping for the sake of an ICC warrant really uh, sort of looks bad for them.
0: So, I'm wondering then if we're looking at the wider BRICS architecture and the other members of the grouping. I'm wondering what we think the internal discussions about the possible suggestions you've mentioned, David, of doing a virtual summit, uninviting Putin, etc., how those countries, all of the groupings, are considering those options. Because it would be a big statement, but at the same time, angering Western countries, making this kind of pushback against an ICC, like public institution, is a big thing. So I'm wondering if you two have any thoughts on what internal dynamics are coming from other BRICS members or other countries privy to this whole situation going on with the summit?
2: Well, there was a foreign ministers meeting, I think it was last week or the week before, in Cape Town, where the BRICS foreign ministers met. I'm not sure if this. I'm sure it was discussed behind closed doors, but we're not privy to that. that kind of Information, but yeah, I'm sure it was discussed at that level, foreign ministers.
1: It's very clear that Putin could get South Africa out of the jam that it's in very easily. He could simply come out and say, you know, he he has a a conflict in Ukraine to manage and doesn't have time to go to the meeting this year, and he's sending someone else in his stead. And that would end the whole thing. But he's not going to do that, in part because he wants to, you know, he doesn't, he wants to eliminate or kind of chase off any question that he's afraid of the ICC warrant. China doesn't really have an interest in having this turn into a an event but doesn't really want to intervene in any way. And and I think you could probably say the same for the other BRICS countries that they they don't really see this as their problem. It's South Africa's problem and possibly Russia's problem. As far as the consequences for South Africa, I mean we've, we've already discussed the potential economic impact if the US doesn't necessarily come out and say that it's Punishing South Africa for failing to arrest Putin, but 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 effectively does that right. South Africa's eligibility under a GOA comes up for review next year, before Congress, and it, it would be very simple for South Africa to simply its its eligibility to simply be ex- allowed to expire. There wouldn't really need to be any sort of diplomatic reason for that uh, cited for that. So. The possibility of that happening is a, is a really major economic threat for South Africa. There's also issues with the EU. Lots of the EU member states are members of the ICC and the EU member states have often sort of overlooked, but the EU has a large role in the functioning of the African Union. The African Union runs to a great degree on EU money. And if the EU were to strenuously object, to you know, South Africa's role in the African Union due to its kind of undeniable violation of the Rome statute, that could present a whole other set of problems for South Africa.
0: After this whole problem originated with the arrest warrant coming out and South Africa being put in a difficult position, Irma Posa, the South African president, came out and said that South Africa would be leaving the ICC, but later took back that statement. We've seen repeatedly that African leaders have said not great things. They believe the ICC is targeting them. So why are most African countries still in the ICC? What ties them to this
2: organization?
1: I mean, it varies from country to country, obviously. The politics within each country are, are, are very different. I think there is, you know, a big part of the reason why African countries joined the ICC in such big numbers was because the EU countries wanted it, and the EU countries fund the African Union to a large degree. Also because of aid. If the African Union countries, if the, the, the signatories either refuse to sign on to the ICC or, or to withdraw from the ICC, that gives ammunition to people in various donor states to say, we, we, we don't want to give you money. Because of the extent to which a lot of the, the ICC member states rely on that aid, I think that's a huge issue. You also have situations like in South Africa, where it's not just a matter of being a member of the court, they have They have a statute in their own law, and so the process of disentangling themselves from the ICC could be pretty complicated. Yet another factor, I think, depends on, and this is something that, like, again, would vary a lot from state to state. I believe there are a number of places where, you know, the political elite may not be happy with the ICC, but the population is, because. You know, a lot of the complaints about the ICC targeting uh, African you know, uh, defendants kind of leave out the fact that it's also what that means is that they're also prosecuting crimes against African victims. And I think in some places, not others, obviously, it's a very diverse continent, but in a lot of places, the public is a little bit more inclined to sympathize with the victims and, and see their crimes prosecuted than they are to sympathize with the often very senior elite people that are being prosecuted for
2: committing those crimes. And there's also, from what I've okay. heard or read, is that sometimes most of the complaints are actually coming from the Africans themselves.
1: The, the whole issue is the the ICC is a court of limited jurisdiction. It can only prosecute crimes based on uh, member states and sort of referrals from the, the Security Council and then sort of individual state requests, like what's happening in Ukraine and part of the reason that you see so many african prosecutions in the icc is that there are so many african states who are members and therefore there you know a large number of the crimes that fall within the icc's jurisdiction are in africa but again it, it you know i think you have an elite issue you have people who are in command of militaries or in command of large you know political movements who are at risk of prosecution and then you have a lot of other people who are not so senior who are really bearing the brunt of the crimes that are being committed.
0: So you also mentioned the Europeans. We've seen the EU be very quiet about this whole problem. We've seen the Africans be quiet as well. The SADC, the AU have not made very loud statements. Is there a reason that the silence has been happening? Maybe something behind the scenes?
1: The European Union and the court itself have actually been very quiet about this. There haven't really been a lot of public statements from the other member states about what they expect from South Africa or what might happen if South Africa reneges under its obligations. And I think, I mean, the ICC has come out and said that it expects South Africa to uphold its obligations, but hasn't said what that means and otherwise hasn't really said much. And I think that may come down to the fact that there are some people who honestly hope and expect that Putin may be arrested and that this is the best opportunity that the ICC may ever get to arrest Putin. And if if the pressure on South Africa is obvious and the threat is obvious to Putin, then he might back back down. But if there's a question that he might go, and then it really becomes a question of what pressure comes to bear on. It, it's It's relevant when you think about that, that the arrest warrant that that has been issued is not for the worst of all possible crime, and there's a great deal of evidence that can be brought to bear against Putin for genocide claims, for other war okay. crimes claims. The, the breadth of the, the possible charges against him by the ICC is pretty huge, and the evidence that there is pretty, is pretty substantial. But what was brought was a specific charge on dealing with the forced removal of children which could be passed through, the arrest warrant could be approved and passed through very quickly because the evidence is absolutely crystal clear. And the questions of sort of subject matter jurisdiction and immunities, there are no real issues there, right? This is a highly pragmatic arrest warrant. This is an arrest warrant that the prosecutor is extremely confident. He gets his hands on Putin, there Mm -hmm. will be a conviction. So it's not just a political statement. This is kind of tailored in mind with the possibility that someone may get Putin into custody. And this may be the best shot at it. So and I think I think the Europeans may be on board with that, which is why they're not really saying a whole lot. It
0: It really sounds like South Africa is in a rock and a hard place. Common sentiment expressed among people who study Africa that a lot of the countries are often put in between a geopolitical battle between the US and its Pacing partners China and Russia, so it's going to be very interesting as we get closer into August, what the South African government decides, what statements its political parties say, both the Democratic Alliance, as Kwangu has mentioned, or the ANC. Thank you very both. Thank you very much to you both for coming on the show today. It was wonderful to be able to discuss these high level geopolitical constraints with you, as well as an impending situation that all of our listeners should pay close attention to, because it will have seemingly big ramifications, not only for the South African-U.S. relationship, but also just wider understanding of the ICC and how much its statements and directives are followed. To our listeners, thank you so much for listening to this episode of Contours. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast on major streaming platforms, including iTunes, SoundCloud, and Spotify, so you don't miss any of our new podcasts. All the best.